Welcome to the Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel of Anshay Emmet Synagogue in Chicago and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Noah and the Ark of Justice. Do you take the story of Noah and the flood seriously? Is it something that uh, an intellectual, a writer, you know, a thoughtful person such as yourself should take seriously, or is it really the stuff of like Burl Ive singing about the animals going into the ark two by two? Right. <laughs> I prefer the Rafi version. I do, actually, I do too. Now think about it. Thank you for that uh, that update. I think Burl Ives really dated me on that one. So. <laughs> yeah, Rafi dates me too, though, because he's he's not exactly a spring chicken. But oh. um, you know, I kind of feel like this is a trick question because if it's in the Torah, how can I not take it seriously? Um, you know, the, the story is so cute with the animals walking two by two onto the boat that we tend to think of it as, as, as you said, uh, you know, a, a folk song and, and not, not, um, serious, you know, Torah study. But, uh, but, but what's the difference really? You know, it's, it's there for a point. It's there just to teach us. So I, yeah, I take it seriously. Those passages in the Torah that sort of make you shake your head are usually the passages that have the most to teach. But we have to sort of suspend your scientific understanding. Although, by the way, if you dig down uh, in certain parts of Mesopotamia, you'll find that there was some sort of great flooding that went on. No one really knows exactly what caused it, but there seems to have been some sort of cataclysmic event that the writer here is referring to. And there are other flood stories, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, where you have, instead of Noah, you have Udnapishtim um, being chosen by a god to be saved. This story has universal aspects, so it may be referring to an event in the memory of humanity. But the Torah has its own understanding of the story. And the generation of Noah is going to be the only generation that God ever destroys. What was it that made them so terrible? And I think that therein is one of the lessons that we could discuss. Because from the rabbinic point of view, there, there is what we would call today natural law. That is, there are certain laws that all people understand as being moral and ethical, like stealing, right is wrong murder is wrong the need to have a system of courts in a society right is a natural good there were actually seven what what are called noahide laws and what i want to suggest here is that the fact that the rabbis call these laws noahide laws is is sort of it, it invites a conversation because what they're saying is, is that, yes, they had natural law, and yet they were worthy of being destroyed. <laughs> so what do we do with that? And how do we understand law in general? Is law a natural good, or can law be used for evil purposes? Well, there's no question that laws can be used for evil purposes. Um, I mean, Hitler made laws that... Um exterminated Jews. And many of our southern states in America made laws to enforce racism and, and segregation of the races, as, as Martin Luther King and as, as Moses and as so many other prophets have pointed out, not all laws are just laws. So um, just because um, 
someone's breaking the law doesn't necessarily mean they're a sinner. But then the question is, you know, why? I guess the question is, what laws were being broken to such an extent um, in the uh, in these Noahide laws, as you called them, that um, that made it um, necessary for the entire civilization to be wiped out? What what was God punishing them for? Were were their sins so much greater than our sins today, or the sins of you know other eras? There's a midrash. There's a midrash for everything. Now, there's a midrash that sort of encapsulates the evil of the generation of Noah. And they give this example. A person, let's say, grew green beans, and they finally harvested their crop of green beans, so they went to the market. And they, as they were walking to the stall in the market, as the person pulled the cart of green beans through the market, people would take one green bean, two green beans, right? Because they knew that you could only take a certain amount, but if you took more than that amount, you could be liable, right? You would be breaking the law. But one green bean was acceptable by the law. No one was going to take you to court. And by the time the person got to their stall, there were no more green beans left, and the family starved. So that the sin of the generation of Noah was that people were not lawless, but they were meticulous in keeping the law and working the law to their advantage. And I think about Dr. King, and I think about you know this whole separate but equal legal system was an outgrowth of Jim Crow. But how we have used the law, and which is still going on in terms of voter suppression, and how Dr. King devoted his life to that, and you, you're you're one of our great experts on that now. And one of the really great strokes of genius that King used, and I think it comes from his obvious religiosity and his the fact that he grew up in the church and he went to attended seminary, is that he recognized that all of these things were connected. That to to fight racism by invoking God by invoking the rules of the Bible, by invoking the Constitution, made his argument so much more compelling and that it, it attracted people who might not have been his allies otherwise. And the fact that he was a preacher gave him a kind of standing to attack segregation and racism on moral terms that other civil rights advocates would not have had. Um, so you, know, you have people like the NAACP, Thurgood Marshall and, and Roy Wilkins attacking um, racism through the courts. But then suddenly here comes this preacher and he says, we are not wrong in what we are doing by marching through Selma. We are not wrong by what we're doing in refusing to, buy, to ride the buses in, in Montgomery. If we are wrong, the Constitution is wrong. If we are wrong, God Almighty is wrong. And it's very difficult to argue with those words, especially um, if you consider yourself a, a patriot and a believer in God. I think what you're saying is so important, or the way that Dr. King understood it, because what he was saying is we have to answer to a higher morality, right? We can't expect the legal system to also be a moral system. What we have to do is create a higher morality from which we create laws that reflect the best of our morality. And I think that's exactly what Dr. King was doing. What the rabbis are pointing out in that midrash about the people of Noah's generation was that we can use the law for all kinds of things. But what Dr. King was doing was saying is exactly what the Torah is going to do, which is what any religious system does, is it points to a higher morality, right? 
I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, right? Or the Torah has a whole series of laws where it will say something like, do not oppress the poor, do not oppress women and the infirm. I am the Lord your God. As if to say, don't forget that there is a higher morality. And when you look away from them, you're looking away from me, God says. And I think that's exactly what Dr. King was doing in his time, is to create that, that reality. You think you are be, you're keeping the law, what you're really doing is you are breaking the laws of morality. Yeah, and one way to think about this for me is that the law it can never be a one-way street. The law can never be just something you hand down. Um, it has to come from the people, and it has to be enforced, and it has to be observed and respected by the people, um, because you often find that, that the laws being handed down by man are not just, and it's up to the people to to prove that and to demand that the that the laws change and and that comes from morality that comes from our inner sense of what's right and wrong so you know one example I often think of is that when women um, began to fight for the right to vote they also began reducing the size of their families they began having fewer children uh, abortion wasn't legal birth control wasn't legal so what did they do they had less intercourse with their husbands. By, and that was their way of asserting that something had to change. They wanted some control over how many children they had. And the, the society was not giving them enough control. The law was not giving enough control. So they took matters into their own hands. And that is when the law begins to change. The law responds to the morality of the people. And it's often the people whose behavior changes before the law catches up to them. And I think that captures what you were saying about at essence, at, at bottom, really, is the morality in, in question. The reality is, is that we are really struggling in our own society with religion and the role of religion and the imposition of certain Christian groups, evangelicals most in particular, on our legal system, right? I think that is a very serious issue that we are faced with. But at the same time, we're also faced with a different phenomenon where we become so judgmental about the person who wrote the law, that we can't hear the genius within the law. So there are too many people in our country that are discarding the Constitution because the writers of the Constitution did reprehensible things. That's highly problematic. I could come back to that term you were using. Where's the respect for the law? Where is that kind of higher understanding? And I think that's a very, very powerful thing. On the one hand, the Constitution was written by human beings. So, you know, it has to be respected and understood as such. But at the same time, it is the foundation stone upon which our country is built. How do we allow the Constitution to evolve at the same time but and, and to be a moral or a legal voice for our country. I, I think that's the challenge of the day. It's a huge challenge, and I wonder sometimes if the fact that we have become overall a less religious society makes it more difficult for us to find that sort of 
common moral ground that we can all agree on. Um, and, you know, I think King would not have succeeded if his religion were not based in the church and if rabbis and imams, people from all different cultures from North and South united in their support of him because he was speaking about God and, and saying that there could never be any religion that would, that would accept that one people are inferior to another. And that united people in coming to his side in this fight. And I wonder if that still works today. I, I worry about that. We shouldn't forget about King's writings from a Birmingham jail where he castigated religious leaders for not being willing to take the extra step or to be kind of constantly uh, advising him that, look how far you've come. Let's go slowly here. Let's, let's count our victories and not you know, focus so much on what we don't have. And he castigated them for that with the zeal of a prophet. Would anybody hear that today? Right. Would, would Noah hear that today? Um, because the question is, you know, what were the, the sins that, that led to the flood, right? And, um, and would we hear them today if, if someone like Noah were crying out, would we hear his cries? depth of meaning of the story. Look where we went in this conversation. Look how relevant it suddenly became. I hope that we do more of that in our society, and I really cherish the opportunity to do that with you, Jonathan. Thanks, Rabbi.